0: As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, well, tonight, uh, this, this evening, um, I am headed to Romania, and uh, for some of you who, who maybe are newer here and you don't know, a few years ago we actually started uh, helping out with a church plant there in Romania. We began a partnership where we have um, been able to walk alongside them. We've sent teams. I do a weekly coaching call with the pastor. Um, and um, we've just had the opportunity as a church to support them financially, and I know most of you are aware of this, but for those of you who are not, um, it's helpful for you to have a little bit of context as to why I'm heading there. Um, I'm actually, for the first time, getting to head there with my wife, Sarah, and um, I'm I'm really excited about that. Most of the time, I get to do these—I have these sweet opportunities to go around the world and do missions work, but most of the time, I'm leaving my wife and kids behind, and um, and that's oftentimes hard on them. I thank you all for your prayers for them, Uh, but this is a really special opportunity for us, and um, Sarah's coming along for a special purpose. We we have the privilege of next Sunday. Um, installing elders in this church. They've, they've gro- God has done such a sweet work, and they've been growing and maturing. They've identified elders. They've vetted these elders. They've gone through this, this rigorous process that we've been a part of. And uh, we get to fly down there, and actually um, I get to preach there next Sunday and install the elders. And, um, and in, in the week leading up to that, I get to preach at a pastor's conference and um, get to preach a few messages there to, uh, right now there are over 30 churches represented, um, more than 30 pastors coming, and leaders from around Romania. And uh, in between there, Sarah and I are gonna get a chance to spend some time with Pastor Joseph and his wife Paula, and the new elders and their wives, and just to spend some time and pour into them, to love on them, and to to make, hopefully, um, a spiritual investment in their lives and in their future ministry. It's incredible to think what God has done in, in uh, that church plan over the last three years. But for some of us, we don't actually know the history of Romania, and it's actually incredible just to consider what God has, God has done there in the last 30 years. Many of you have heard the name uh, Richard Wurmbrand. I've mentioned him before. He's the most famous uh, pastor theologian to come out of Romania. He was a, a persecuted pastor Under the communist era in Romania, he was actually imprisoned as a pastor for his faith in Jesus Christ for 14 years. And during those 14 years, um, during the Cold War, he suffered immensely for his faith. He witnessed the suffering of many believers, uh, many who refused to turn their back on Jesus Christ and suffered and even died for doing so. Richard Wormbrand actually is the founder of what many of you may be familiar with, the the Voice of the Martyrs Ministry, that serves the persecuted church around the world. Uh, This is a man who knew what it was to suffer for his faith. It's a man who knew what it was to suffer for Jesus, and a man who knew what it was to suffer like Jesus. And he wrote much about the the persecuted church, he wrote much about what it means to follow Jesus and what it might mean to suffer for Jesus, and he wrote this profound statement that I found helpful this past week as I've contemplated just what it means to follow Jesus. He said this, a man really believes not what he recites in his creeds, but only the things he is ready to die for. When we think about what it means to suffer for Jesus, and when we think about the stories of the persecuted church, it's really difficult for us in a contemporary Western society to imagine what it must be like to potentially be imprisoned for following Jesus, to be tortured for following Jesus, and even to die for following Jesus. It's very hard to simply kind of parachute in there, even mentally, and to put ourselves in those kind of scenarios. It's just so foreign. Uh, from what we experience on the day-to-day for following Jesus, isn't it? I mean, this just seems so unrelatable. We have it so easy compared to so many around the world. And as Peter writes his letter, he actually is writing to a group of Christians, to a group of churches that are not yet having to suffer significant persecution for their faith. They're not yet losing their life for following Jesus that is still yet to come. In only a couple of decades, the church in the Greco-Roman world would suffer significant persecution. They would be fed to the lions. They would be tortured. They would be persecuted in despicable ways. But right now, the kind of suffering that the Christians are facing is more Uh, social ostracization. It's, It's actually very similar to the kind of suffering that we might actually experience for following Jesus today. Probably not to the same degree, but in some ways there's some parallels. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. They were humiliated. They sacrificed social advancement in their relationships and maybe even in their career opportunities. It cost them. It did. It cost them deeply And as we read this letter of 1 Peter, it's really just helpful to know that what Peter says is so applicable to how we are called to live our lives in following Jesus Christ. Peter writes these words in 1 Peter chapter 4. In light of the suffering of Jesus Christ, he says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter gives us a reminder of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and I just want to remind you from the word of God this morning that the call of all of the scriptures as we come into the New Testament in particular is this this simple call for all of humanity. It's, It's follow Jesus. When he came to his disciples, he made that simple statement to them, drop everything, leave this world behind, and follow me. And when he said those words, and as he ministered to his disciples and to those who followed them, Jesus was not ashamed of the cost of discipleship. He wasn't afraid to tell people what it meant to follow him. Contrary to many in our culture who want to paint following Jesus as simply a life that's filled with ease and comfort and joy all the time because of circumstances, that's not the call of what it means to follow Jesus in the scriptures. The call of Jesus is modeled after the life of Jesus. And here we see once again that suffering leads to glory. And so here's what I want to draw from this passage this morning I, I want to draw out what it really means to follow Jesus. I want us to see the cost involved and I want us to reevaluate again and, 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 and hunker down in our conviction about what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe for some of you here today, you're hearing the gospel maybe for the first time or maybe you're hearing it again. You've heard it before and you've not yet chosen to follow Jesus Christ. But maybe today, even in light of the cost of following Jesus, today will be the day where you will say, I will choose to follow Jesus. So, if I really want to follow Jesus, here's what the word of God says, I must first do this, suit up for suffering. We've kind of already talked about that, haven't we? We must suit up for suffering. And here, Peter gives us this really vivid image of what it means to suit up for suffering. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, listen to these words, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He pulls us back into, again, this picture that Jesus Christ, as we saw last week, has suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ, in his flesh, he suffered physically. He paid the ultimate price for sin by suffering in his first body, by suffering to the point of death. And in dying, Jesus Christ actually paid the penalty for sin, He put death to death for all those who believe in him. That's what it means there, that since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. You'll notice this phrase shows up three times just in the first couple of verses. And again, it reaches back into the previous section. This idea of in the flesh is is simply to say in his physical body prior to the resurrection. To follow Christ is to follow him, not just in vindication and glory, it's not just all the good stuff that we have to look at when we choose to follow Jesus, but actually also in suffering and dying. The call of the Christian life is a life of dying, of dying to self, to pick up our cross daily, to follow Jesus. Richard Rembrandt wrote these words, In one of his books, he said this Not all of us are called to die a martyr's death, but all of us are called to have the same spirit of self sacrifice and love to the very end as these martyrs had. Hear what he's saying there? He's saying, Listen, most of us in this room are not actually going to suffer physically for our faith. We're just not. I would be shocked if any one of us is going to be actually martyred, killed for our faith. Yet, we are to have that same mindset, that that same spirit of self-sacrifice. Here's the idea here, the same spirit of love. Love for what? For Jesus Christ. It's the call of the Christian to say, I love Jesus Christ more than I love anything else in the world. I love Jesus Christ more than I love my own life here and now. And when I love Jesus Christ like that, I can live for Jesus Christ. I can live faithfully for Jesus Christ. And so he says here, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. The word there for arming yourself literally means to prepare by equipping. It's the call of God's word saying, get ready. Equip yourself, prepare yourself yourself. It's a term that's often used in a military context of the process of preparation for battle, which is so fitting because the Christian life is described in the Bible as warfare. We are in the middle of a spiritual war against the great enemy of our souls Satan who is seeking to steal kill and destroy we are at war peter says with our flesh that the sin that is still present within us it wages war upon us and we are to wage war upon it so this built-in illustration is so fitting. It's so helpful for us, us as Christians to simply remember, listen, every day is a day we are preparing for battle. Every day is a day we are walking into enemy territory. Every day we are to suit up for suffering. This is what the previous section actually reminds us of. If you were here last week, we we looked deeply at the gospel, and and in particular, the, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And here's just simply what you need to take away from that. This was the declaration of victory. God is holding forth through the resurrection, in particular, and ascension of Jesus, the billboard of his victory over the spiritual realm. It is God's statement to the spiritual realm, you haven't won, you haven't succeeded, you have not conquered, your end is coming, I am king, I am ruler, I have won the battle. Now now here's, here's what Peter is preparing us for. Since Jesus has done that, since he's made this declaration, we just need to understand something. Satan is not going to give up easily. He's a sore loser. He's not simply just going, well, I guess that's it. I guess I'll just throw in the towel, pack up my bags, and go home. That's not the way the Bible describes Satan's response to the victory of Jesus Christ in the cross. He is a disarmed ruler. He is a defanged lion, but he is still prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter's going to say that in chapter 5. He is still a vicious and a dangerous enemy, and if we don't realize that, we are going to be his prey. Satan's been humiliated, Colossians 2.15 says. He's been triumphed over, but he's not giving up and he's not going home, not that easily. And so Peter's point is that we must get ourselves ready to fight in the war, the war against sin and Satan, to be prepared in doing so, to suffer, possibly even die. So the question that we need to ask of this text is how? How are we supposed to suit up? Well, let me give you three ways we need to suit up in this battle. Here's how we can arm ourselves. First, we need to arm ourselves mentally. You'll notice he says there, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, arm yourselves mentally like Jesus did. Jesus knew that he was in for suffering. He came, he was sent by the Father, he knew and he agreed to this reality that he was coming to suffer before he ever went back to glory. Mental preparation requires... An intentional dwelling upon the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for us as Christians, the Word of God constantly calls us back to the gospel. We, we say this oftentimes around here. As a Christian, the gospel is not something we simply, you know, kind of believe at the beginning and move past. It's something we continue to dive deeper into. The more mature you are in the faith, the greater handle you have on the gospel, on how it actually is intended to infect every area of your life, on how it impacts every decision you make. There are certain sports that require a very high degree of mental preparation. If you are a professional football player, um, specifically if you're a quarterback, you are required to go over play after play. They have a whole binder, a playbook that you have to memorize, and you'll see this on the on the stands. Uh, sorry, when a quarterback is, is not um, playing, he's sitting on the bench, what he's often doing is he's going, he's got the playbook open, and he's going over the plays, over the plays, over the plays, he's drilling them into his mind over and over and over again. So that the moment he gets out onto the field, in the midst of the battle, listen, the, the, the execution of those plays is like second nature. He has thought about it so much, he has visualized it so much, he can respond at any given moment to whatever happens in front of him. It's the same thing with a, a race car driver. They, they spend Hours and hours of mental preparation that they know every turn in the track, every bump, every hill, every part of the track, every part of the race is visualized mentally before they're ever getting into the car and driving. So that, listen, the execution when they're out on the road is flawless. Listen, Christian, can I just tell you that one of the reasons we are to be mentally processing the gospel, mentally running the gospel through our hearts and our minds is, listen, so that in the heat of battle, The gospel becomes so instinctive to us. We respond with a a, a gospel response. We're already thinking the right way. It's so drilled into our hearts and minds that we simply respond from the overflow of the gospel in our lives. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's table so frequently. This is God's doing. God is saying, rehearse the gospel in your lives. And we do that through a variety of ways every Sunday morning, One of the ways we get to do this morning, rehearsing the gospel, is is found right here at the Lord's Supper. The second way we can suit up is not just mentally, but spiritually. This call to arm yourselves, just notice there's a reflexive action here. It implies an effort. It implies diligence. It implies thoughtfulness and care. You and I need to arm ourselves. This isn't going to happen by accident. And so by implication, this is telling us that we need to cultivate a life of spiritual discipline. This idea of discipline in the scriptures is a common thread. To be spiritually disciplined like an athlete is held up to us as an illustration perpetually. Christian growth um, doesn't happen by accident. Sanctification, I've said this before, is like riding a bike uphill, okay? growth in the Christian life. It's like riding a bike uphill. If you don't keep pedaling, you don't stand still, you begin to fall backwards. We must be in perpetual motion. This is about um, spiritual reps in the spiritual gym, if I can use that analogy. Where the more reps and the more weight you place upon yourself, spiritually speaking, the stronger you get, the healthier you get, the more effective you become at developing that spiritual muscle. We must be a people who are developing the habits of grace that produce spiritual growth in our lives, a tenacity and a perseverance, a grit, spiritually speaking, so that we might endure even unjust suffering if we are to face it. It is to make our perspectives and our expectations line up with His. To allow His word to shape our view of life, the spiritual disciplines, which most of you are familiar with, are are things we talk about frequently around here, we talk about them in our small group ministry, we're working hard at growing those areas in our lives through our small group ministry, and and together, as we pursue the Lord, and can I just tell you that that is so intentional, we believe so firmly what the Bible says about the, the nature of spiritual disciplines and their value in our lives, the way that God is using them to prepare us, reading the Bible, meditating on the scripture, praying the word of God. These are all things that are so essential. It's early still in the year. It's March 1st today, right? Um, Many of you maybe made some spiritual resolutions I and mean, how you wanted to do in your spiritual life. I hope you did. I hope you, you thought through that or you've processed that. If you haven't, it's okay. Maybe you can even start that process today. But let me ask for, um, for some of you who maybe started on a Bible reading plan, you had uh, great aspirations and good intentions about following through with developing some spiritual disciplines in your life. Let me just ask you this morning how are you doing with that? Let's do a little bit of a spiritual checkup. Where are you at? Are, are you succeeding? Are you excelling? Or have you slipped and are you maybe falling a little behind? If that's you today, maybe you're like, I haven't, I made no spiritual goals. I've just kind of been trying to coast to this and it's simply not working. Can I just say that you, listen, today is a new day. March 1st is as good a day as any to simply say to the Lord, Lord, today I am going to do a spiritual inventory of my life and I am going to hunker down. I'm going to drill down into these spiritual disciplines of my life and today I'm going to start something different. So some of you are like, okay, yes, uh, tomorrow is Monday. I'm going to wake up and read my Bible. And maybe it's been a long time since I've do that. Can I encourage you, don't wait till tomorrow morning. Leave church today. Go home. Get before the Lord. Spend 15, 20 minutes simply opening your Bible and reading the Scriptures and praying. Get, get, a, get a head start on Monday, okay? Like, let's get the ball rolling. Get up tomorrow excited and filled with faith again and expecting of what the Lord might do and how he might meet you in, in your time in the Word and in prayer Lastly, I think we need to suit up um, communally. Too often, uh, we think of the spiritual life and spiritual growth as simply an individual pursuit. And here, I just want to point something out to you that's not maybe apparent or obvious. Um, just at as, as a surface level reading, the, the words that are used here are all in the plural form. In other words, we need to be reminded that Peter is not writing to just simply a bunch of individual Christians. He's writing actually to a bunch of, of, of Christian churches, and he's writing to communities who are learning how to lean into one another, who are learning how to suffer together, who are learning how to pursue Jesus together. This is the, the plan of God for our spiritual growth. It is not to try to do this on our own. It is to draw into the, the family of faith, the people of God. I love, that's that's why I love this. We sing these songs. Do you notice that when we sing these songs, we sing them in the plural? Do you know you ever notice that like we sing Lord we praise you we love we adore you we 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 can I just can I just remind you that that is such an important statement that we're it's not just me, it's not just I me it's we we are encouraging one another all the more until the day draws near we're singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do You see, one and other. We're doing this together, and it's so, so critical to remember that because, listen, a lone wolf, as I've been told in the past, is a dead wolf. We're stronger together. And if you're not a part of, listen, this is why we we push membership in this church. We believe that committing to the local church is, listen, it's not about numbers. It's not about a tally. It's simply this it's about spiritual care, spiritual health, and spiritual vitality. It's about understanding who the family of God is so we can link arms together and we can storm the gates of hell together. We suffer as Christians. Because we have made a conscious decision against sin and Satan in this world. Let me say that this is so important. Here's why we suffer for Jesus. Listen, because we have made a conscious decision against sin, Satan, and the world. That's what he says here in, in one, um, the, the last half of verse 1. Look at what he says. This is confusing to some people, but I hope it's going to be very clear in a moment. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin... Remember, in the flesh means in this body prior to the resurrected body. And so he says to us, I believe he's speaking to the church, he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter's point is that Christian suffering is an indication that we've chosen Christ over this world. He's not saying that we've ceased from sin in the sense that we're going to be perfect. We we know that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. But the idea here is this, that in your suffering, do you want to know the statement? In suffering for Jesus, you want to know what that is revealing to you and to the world around you? I have driven my stake in the ground. I have chosen to follow Jesus. I will no longer, here's what it's saying. I have chosen to follow Jesus. I will no longer serve the slave master of sin. You see that? Jesus is my savior. Jesus is the one I put my hope and trust in. Jesus is my desire. Jesus is my everything. My sin no longer has a grip on me, not like it used to. Every day, every day we wake up and we say, God, I choose to follow you by your grace. By your grace, I choose to follow you with your power within me. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to Jesus Christ. Your suffering is a statement that you refuse to live in sin, and instead, it's a statement, as I've just said, of this second point, that you submit to the Savior. That's the statement we're making in our suffering. I mean, isn't that so obvious, by the way? Um, Christians around the world who are being persecuted and killed for their faith, did you know, most, in most cases, they're given a chance to recant. They're told things like this. If, if you deny Jesus Christ as Lord and God, we will let you live. We will not kill your family. They're told things like that. And it's amazing to see that in the face of those kind of statements that the true followers of Christ are saying in their suffering and in their death, I have submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The Christian life is decided, in one sense, in a moment of submission. The call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to submit, to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as master, to recognize that there is no God like the one true and living God, to believe that he and he alone can save you from your sins. In the moment of salvation, nobody is saved without bowing the knee, spiritually speaking, to Jesus Christ, without humbling your heart and confessing him as Lord and surrendering your life to him. Nobody is saved apart from that act. but the Christian life is also lived out in a thousand little moments of submission. Every single day, a thousand little moments of submission. In fact, I would argue that to follow Jesus is to learn how to increasingly submit and surrender to the Savior. This is the objective of of Christian maturity and Christian growth. This is how you identify a a spiritual baby from a spiritual, uh, mature man or woman in the Lord. It's how much is their life submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Peter makes this clear by contrasting two competing wills that every one of us has to wrestle through and wrestle with. Having died to sin, he is alive to God. That's what the scripture says. We are alive to God. The rest of our life is no longer shaped by the desires of sin, which could be interpreted like this, the will of the flesh. The desires of the the flesh, the will of the flesh, but instead, in contrast to the will of the flesh, our desires and our passions are shaped by the will of God. We have a new master, And if you do this, here's what Peter wants to remind you. If you choose the will of God over the will of flesh, here's what you're signing up for. You're actually signing up for suffering to a degree. And again, that this is a sign, this suffering is a sign that you have decided to follow Jesus. When you suffer because you've said no to sin, when you suffer because you have said, Satan, I I will not follow um, the, the path of unrighteousness, you are signing up for suffering. So say, well, what if I've said that I follow Jesus, but I've never experienced any suffering in my life? And by suffering, I don't mean necessarily physical persecution, because that would eliminate virtually all of us. Here's what I mean by suffering. Let's talk about the kind of, again, suffering that Peter's readers would have been suffering. I mean, you've never been mocked for your faith, n- not even tongue-in-cheek, you know? You've never been ridiculed. You've never been told that you're, that's foolish, what you think is foolish, You've never been ostracized because of the, the decisions you're making to try and please the Lord, that you, you won't do certain things that, that, that maybe your friends do. You've never been kind of highlighted or isolated or ostracized in any way, shape, or form. You say, well, I've never, I've, since I've been a follower of Jesus, and, and, and as a follower of Jesus, I've never, ever been maligned. I've never been reviled. I've never even been mocked. I mean, my, my life has just been clear sailing. You say, what, what if that's me? One author said this, he says, if you don't suffer as a Christian in this world, it's because you have chosen the will of man with its sensualities and passions. You won't suffer because the world loves you. But if you suffer as a Christian at the hands of a hostile world, it's because you have chosen the will of God with its righteousness. To choose God's will is to choose suffering." So, here's the question. What does the evidence of your life reveal? What's the evidence of your life reveal? Maybe it's revealing that it's time to stop submitting to sin and start submitting to the Savior. Maybe it's revealing that you've begun to look way too much like the world and you have never spoken up for Jesus Christ in the world Maybe it's time to realize that you must be done with your old ways of living, that they can no longer characterize you as the Scriptures say. And as Peter says right here, he says, look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He describes here a godless lifestyle, That's what he's doing. He's Essentially, he's coming alongside the church and he's saying, listen, if your life just looks like the godless lifestyle of those in the world around you, if you're no different from they are, then of course you're not suffering for Jesus. And here's what this list reveals. It reveals to us that there is supposed to be a decisive break with sin that characterizes the follower of Jesus Christ because we realize that Jesus Christ has died for those very sins. Not only that, we know that the power of sin has been broken in our lives and we can say definitively, I am no longer under the power of sin. It no longer has to control me the way it once did. It reminds us, listen, that the moral standards of our life must actually look visibly different than the moral standards of those in the world around us. It's unequivocal that when you come to Jesus and you start living for Jesus, you start looking like Jesus, which is going to conflict with the way those in the world look. He actually uses the term Gentile here. Did you notice that? The time um, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That word Gentile is being used to refer to uh, the category of unbelievers. It indicates that Peter understood believers in Jesus in a certain kind of light. You may have picked up on this, but one of the things Peter has been doing is he's been speaking to the church throughout this letter in, in very definitively Jewish language. He describes them, for example all the way back in chapter two, he says, as you come to him, verse four, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Those are terms for Old Testament Israel. You yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This is deeply, deeply a Jewish language. In verse Nine, he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then let me remind you of what he says next. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see what he's doing? He's coming alongside the New Testament church, and he's saying, you are the New Testament people of God, and I am connecting you back to your spiritual lineage. You are a part of the Old Testament people of God. And in effect, you as, as the true people of God are one and the same. And just like they suffered and they were called out and they were supposed to be different, so too you will suffer because you have been called out and you must be different. He's grounding their identity and he's reminding them of, of who they are. Which, which, by the way, listen, this is so helpful. Now as you read back through the Old Testament, I mean, you can kind of see yourself there. He's like, when you see what they were called to be and how they were supposed to respond in the world around them, you can say, in a sense, we're supposed to be like that now. You are God's people, he's saying. And God's people have always From cover to cover in the word of God, they've always been called to look different from those who do not know God because God's plan is that they would show them God and call them to believe in God. You ever read through the the Old Testament law and And maybe like Leviticus 19 is a classic example. If you've not read that recently, just go back and read that this afternoon where where there's just, just, just a mashup of all different kinds of areas in the Jewish, the Jews' life that was supposed to be kind of uniquely defined. You know, you're not supposed to Um, cross certain fabrics. You're not supposed to eat certain food. You're not supposed to do certain things. And it's kind of just kind of mashed together. If you look at the Old Testament, here's my point. Listen, if you look at the Old Testament law and you see all these laws that we kind of gloss over when we're reading the scriptures, we can miss the point of what God's trying to say to his people. Listen, here it is. Listen, in every area of your life, you are supposed to look radically different from those around you. All of your life is to be devoted to your God. And that life, you say, how do we know what, what's supposed to, what that's supposed to look like by the word of God? And we're no longer under the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, but when we come to the New Testament, we get a very clear understanding of what it looks like to be under the law of Christ and how we live in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. We were once not a people, but now we are God's people We were once those who did not receive mercy, but now we have received mercy, and can I just remind you that he describes here what the Gentiles do, and and he gives us this kind of of big picture of, of the world around us. Listen to what he says, living in sensuality and passions. The idea here is unrestrained indulgence, you know, whatever the flesh wants, and it is particularly related to sexual immorality. Peter is saying, listen, this is the world that, 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 that the church is immersed in back then. And by the way, the, the parallels are striking, isn't it? And we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. And this, by the way, was a common kind of reality in the ancient world. They were driven by their passions, sensuality, drunkenness, and orgies, and drinking parties. They consumed the people. They live for the moment. They live for instant pleasure and gratification. I mean, this is the culture we live in. Maybe this is the way some of you are choosing to live. And all of this, he says, in in effect, is lawless idolatry. We choose the gods that we want to serve that are going to allow us to indulge in the things we want to indulge in. The gods that are going to give us the most amount of freedom, that unrestricted indulgence of the flesh... Choose Christ means to be done with the old ways, and it means a, a life of turning away from what we used to love to a, a greater love, a love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You say, Well, what hope is there for me if this describes my life? Maybe you're here today and you're like, This, this literally is the description of my life. I mean, I lo- and some of you, by the way, you've lived this kind of a life, this has characterized your past. Some of you are looking back and and you you resonate with the words of Peter that that, that this defined your past life and it no longer defines the present. Some of you in here, it defines your present life and you're wondering if it has to define your future life. Maybe you're wondering here today, I mean, my life is so filled with this kind of sin and and muck and filth. I mean, can I ever actually be forgiven for this? this? Is this my future? Is this determining my, my eternal reality in the presence of God? And the answer of the scripture is this, it does not have to define you any longer. Once you had not received mercy, but today God stands before you, and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he offers you mercy. He says, listen, he says, Jesus Christ died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you turn to Jesus Christ and you take all of that sin and you lay it down at the foot of the cross and you simply confess the reality of what the Bible says that you are a sinner, in need of a Savior, and you say to Jesus, today, I repent of my sin. I believe that you and you alone have died to pay the price for my sin, and you and you alone can set me free from the power of sin. I declare you as my Lord and Savior today. Listen, today, those old sins that defined you no longer define you. The righteousness of Jesus Christ defines you. If you're in Christ today and you've been struggling with sin, listen, what a sweet reminder. Wherever you've been this past week, wherever you've been this past year, listen, the same truth of the gospel is true for you and me today. God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness is full and free. Come and drink from the well. Come and have your soul refreshed. Refreshed. Come remember the love of God for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ and let your heart be filled to live a life submitted to the Savior. All of life in submission to the Savior. Oh God, help us, amen? But listen, if this, if this is the decision that we make and this is the daily decision we make, here's the, the reality that we need to wrestle with. If I really want to follow Jesus, I must strive to be strange. <laughs> Get ready. And, and this is so important. Look at what verse 4 says. It says, with respect to this, that is your, your break from their sinful living your submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ with respect to this, they, the world, are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And instead of just being shocked, it gets even better than that. They malign you. You know, we spend so much time in our culture trying to fit in, don't we? So much of our lives are consumed with trying to fit in. Trying to make sure we are liked by those around us. Trying to make sure, listen, we look the same or better than those around us. Not one of us in here probably actively intentionally strives to be different or strange or peculiar. Maybe, maybe you do, but that's also like if, you know, I, I think of people who dress really weird on purpose. Like that is actually, you know, and then they get angry when people look at them like they're weird. When that was the whole goal in the first place. There is a sense in which Christians should strive in, in, in godliness to look strange to the world and actually to be okay with that. But this goes so counter to our flesh and it goes so counter to our culture that is begging us, begging us to fit in, pulling us to fit in. When we become enamored with the world, listen, you just need to hear this. Re- this, is, this is at the heart of the issue right here. When we become enamored with the world, we will inevitably blend in with the world. That is not what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, the more closely we follow Jesus, the more visibly we will stand out in the world. And this will not always be received in a positive way. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it's our difference that is an attraction to people, but oftentimes it's our difference from the world that uh, causes, causes them to malign us, as Peter says here. But the truth is, church, listen, if we are going to pull them toward the Savior, we cannot join them in their sin. We cannot join them in the unrestrained indulgence of the flesh. Did you see the language he uses here? The flood of debauchery. I mean, this is just what defines the world. It's sin now. Sin, I want what I want. I want it now. And sin of the heart is rebellion against God. It's a desire to be seated on the throne of our lives, to kick God off, to keep God off. And here it's the picture of those who are wasting their life away and instead are rushing headlong to destruction. They glory in their shame. Their passions are driving them straight towards punishment. And they're surprised, (laughs) or literally, they think it's strange. When We don't join them in the same kind of activities, in the same way of thinking, when we don't participate in what they participate in. And again, just right here, we're being reminded by Peter of our Christian identity. It's the same identity as the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We are strangers. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're not supposed to fit in. This world is not our home. What's interesting here is that Christians are considered strange because they do not participate in what the surrounding culture considers normal. Their morality, again, their values, their behavior, the activities. You know, in the early church, unbelievers were puzzled, and then later on, they were outraged by the failure of believers to participate in activities that were normal in the Greco-Roman culture. They were confused, they thought they were strange, there's all kinds of extra-biblical writings that describe Christians as being weird and bizarre, and eventually that led to hatred and persecution. Tom Schreiner, a commentator, he writes these words, just to give you some cultural context, he says, idolatry was woven into almost every dimension, I'll put it on the screen behind me there, it be helpful for you to be able to follow along. I see it right there. There we go. Idolatry was woven into almost every dimension of their lives. From life in the home, to public festivals, to religious observances, and even social occasions, we take for granted, he says, the separation of private and public spheres, but public festivals in which the gods were worshipped were considered a civic duty in the Greco-Roman world. It's almost like a, a Daniel... And and his, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego situation, which, by the way, becomes the paradigm, you know, Babylon, um, the city of man and the city of God. Babylon is going to be referenced here at the end of this chapter, by the way, to remind us that we are the people of God who are living in the city of man. But you can just see across the Testaments, listen, that the same truth has been present all along. The world, the culture, is going to deem some things normal and acceptable, and the expectations of the world are going to be placed upon the church. And eventually, the church must come to a place where they say, I will not bow down. I won't do it. At the time that Peter was writing, emperor worship was becoming the mark of a good citizen. So if you chose not to worship the emperor or venerate the, the emperor, you were risking a public ostracization, you were risking being maligned. And by the way, a lot of these sins, the sexual sins and the, the sins of alcohol that were being combined together, they were a part of the fabric of idolatrous worship. So you, so you see, it, it's, it's the big picture here. It's the fitting in with the world that's at risk here and ultimately the gods that they worship in the world. It's much more subtle and cloaked today than it was for them, but the same truth is present today. The situation in many ways mirrors our situation, simply stating our our convictions in a non-combative and gracious way today can lead us to social and actually, in some settings, legal trouble. I mean, I, I don't know if you've just followed certain issues in the news, but listen, our our beliefs as the church who believes in the Word of God, who lets the Word of God define what we think about things, are no longer the cultural norm. And the world is becoming hostile. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Our understanding of marriage as being between one man and one woman for life, a covenant relationship, is something that the world kind of mocks and scoffs at, Our definition, uh, the Bible's definition of gender and sexuality are being turned upside down, and we're the ones who seem out of step with culture and are viewed as being intolerant. Our views are at odds in many ways with the culture and we are and we will feel the backlash of the world and we need to be reminded, as Peter is doing here, that that backlash is not a sign of the abandonment of God. It's a sign of the faithfulness of God's people. He's calling us not to shrink back, to strive to be strange, to be okay with being viewed as being weird and different and even to be maligned and reviled and mocked. This is what we sign up for as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ himself endured. How can you do this well? That's the question. Let me just encourage you with a couple thoughts. First, share your convictions when you're asked. And sometimes even when you're not. Share your convictions about what the Bible says, about who God is, about what the gospel teaches about sin and sexuality and salvation and about a whole spectrum of issues. Share your convictions with grace and love and kindness. But maybe more than that, listen, be prepared to give biblical answers and explanations to people. This is where the church seems to be failing most in the world around us. We give pat answers. We give superficial treatments of very deep theological issues. It's not that we simply want them to think we're strange or peculiar people, we want them to know why we are strange and peculiar people. Does that follow? We want them to know not just that we're different, we want them to know why we're different. And parents, maybe if I can speak to you, this is so important, as you are raising a generation of kids who are facing some unique challenges that, that maybe some of you, you as parents, never had to face. The way that the culture is turned, we need to prepare this generation of kids. I'm so thankful for for Miles and and the work that he does with the youth in this church. I'm so thankful for Laura and for the ministry in this church to our, our children. You just need to know that there is an intentionality that they have built into their ministries that is intentionally trying to equip students not just with the right answers, but with the why that undergirds those answers. With the biblical truth, they're helping them see and understand and believe and defend the truths that they are standing upon. That is something to praise God for. And church, let me encourage you. It is so critical that we are teaching our kids the why of what we believe, not just the right answer. Why? Why does the Bible say that sexuality looks like this? Why does the Bible say that marriage is supposed to look like this? Why does the Bible talk about sin like this? We must equip them with the why if they are going to be able to stand upon the what and share that with conviction. So, uh, parents, this should go without saying, but you need to know the why as well. <laughs> if I really want to follow Jesus, I must strive to be strange, and finally, I must stand upon my salvation. Here's the anchor that he, he keeps bringing us back to. Look at what he says. He says, He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That idea there, let me just bring some clarity to this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, refers to believers who have died already and you need to understand what's happening here in the context these are believers those who have who had heard the gospel when they were alive they believed the gospel but they died anyway and the the culture and the world around was mocking Christianity because they believed in this living hope. They believed in this resurrection from the dead, and yet they were believing the gospel these Christians were, and yet they were still dying. And so you see, they were looking, the world was looking and saying, like, your faith is nothing. You die just like the rest of us And here Peter calls us to a forward-looking gaze. You see, he reminds us again that while unbelievers may be enjoying the favor and privileges of society, a social advancement, maybe the praise of their peers, the church will enjoy the privileges of God. While we may be judged now by the world, the world will be judged by God. And in the end, we will not only find ourselves on the right side of history, we will find ourselves on the right side of eternity. You see, from the perspective of a skeptic, Christianity seems empty. It seems pointless. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who says, well, it just sounds like um, I got to give up my life of fun, I'm going to die anyways, and who knows what's going to happen. What advantage is there to believing in Christ if Christians suffer more in this life, right? And then they still end this life painfully by dying, maybe even being killed for their faith. Peter argues, though, that Christians die. He says, listen, listen to this here, that they are judged in the flesh the way people are. Again, that's in the, the body, the the." the physical body before the resurrected body, we die physically, that's all he's saying, they will live in the spirit the way God does. In the realm of the spirit, they will be given a resurrected spiritual, physical body. Spiritual and physical, they are not in contrast with each other. As we saw in 3.18, to live in the spirit means, again, that resurrection to a spiritual incorruptible body that awaits believers on the final day of resurrection. Peter is simply saying that the gospel preached to us and believed by us gives us a hope beyond the here and now. He's saying simply this, listen, Christian, your faith is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. It is not empty because it brings fullness of life here and now and it will bring fullness of life in eternity beyond the grave. You will be vindicated. You will receive that spiritually resurrected body in Jesus Christ. And this idea here uh, that... This hope of salvation that awaits us is so, to be such an anchor for our soul. But the idea of judgment here that's talked about is so offensive today to so many people in our society. But the Bible, even to Christians, I hear Christians try to wiggle around or get out of this idea that those who reject God and rebel against the gospel of Jesus Christ are going to be judged one day for their sins and spend eternity in hell where they will pay for their sins. Christians, listen, that's not a doctrine I, I love, by the way. It's not a doctrine I enjoy, but it is a doctrine the Bible teaches, and a a doctrine we must embrace. The Bible teaches that God is love, but we often reduce that idea into something that says that he's simply nice to people. C.S. Lewis observed this. It'll be on the screen as well. He says this, We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence. Who likes to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. But this paints an inaccurate picture of God. You see, God is a holy and consuming fire who deserves our reverence and awe and our complete surrender and submission. And the thought of facing him and accounting for life in the body ought to motivate us, even this very moment, listen, to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that was preached so that man might live with God forever. The thought of those who will one day stand in judgment and give an account to God for the life they lived in the flesh ought to motivate us to preach the gospel here and now. Church, listen, this ought to be a motivating factor for the mission of Jesus Christ. There are people who need to hear because they will stand before the living God and give an account for their life. And when it's all said and done, the thought that we have been spared God's judgment as the people of God, that Jesus has been judged in our place ought to motivate us to love the gospel and to love the God of the gospel even more. Amen? It ought to motivate us to follow Jesus.